Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 107. Hello and welcome to the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help you on your path to becoming a physician. If you're struggling with some last-minute MCAT test prep studying, go check out Next Step testprep.com and the one-on-one tutoring that they offer. If you're taking the January MCAT, the the final iteration of the quote-unquote old MCAT, and you need some last-minute tutoring, go check them out. They're offering $100 off any of their one-on-one tutoring. Go to nextsteptestprep.com. If you're taking anything after January, they're still offering you $50 off their tutoring, so it's still an awesome deal. Again, check them out nextsteptestprep.com. Let them know you heard about them here at the medical school headquarters. This week, I have our lovely co-host back in the studio with us, Dr. Allison Gray. Hello. How are you doing? Just dandy. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. It's, it's nice having somebody sitting across from me so we can talk instead of just over Skype or something like that. Mm, that is true. Yeah. You could install a mirror down here and then... You'd then I'm talking back. to myself? Yeah. yeah. Eh, that's a little weird. <laughs> I, I like your thinking, but it's, still, it's a little weird. <laughs> it's nice to have you back. We're going to talk about something... We, we got the idea from an article on Kevin MD that talks about what medical school doesn't prepare you for. But we're going to expand it a little bit and talk about kind of what pre-med doesn't prepare you for for medical school and what medical school doesn't prepare you for residency and so on and so forth, residency for the real world. Right. And you might ask, well, why are we talking about this? Because we here at Medical School HQ like to make sure that you are well informed about what challenges and excitement and all of it that you might face on your journey toward becoming a physician. So we think maybe highlighting it at each stage of the journey would be helpful. 
Yeah, we don't try to sugarcoat everything. There, there are some struggles along the way and some, some negative things that are perceived. And I think a lot of those negative things that are perceived are because we lack that expectation of it possibly happening. Right. And so if we teach you what those expectations may be, then when you encounter them, it's not as negative as it maybe would have been. Absolutely. Does that make sense? I think so. Awesome. If you have experienced anything along the way that you think we didn't cover in this podcast, go to the specialized show notes for this page, medicalschoolhq.net slash 107, and you can leave us a comment there about something that you've encountered that, that maybe will help somebody else. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to get started with the pre-med path and what... As a pre-med, you're not prepared for once you hit medical school. Why don't you start us off? Well, so many of you have heard us talk in the past about the drinking from the fire hose concept. And that's probably one of the big things that uh, is not, I don't know if it's something that you really can sort of prepare for, but it's definitely something to expect that after you complete your pre-med phase and you head into medical school, that the amount of knowledge that you are expected to take in, that the amount of learning and the amount of just uh, just information is comes at you very fast and in full force, lots of it all at once. And that can be challenging. And we all know um, as pre-meds that the, the pre-med uh, prerequisites and, and just being a pre-med itself is, is, is extremely stressful in certain ways. And uh, the amount of knowledge that you're trying to accrue then is, is can be very challenging. But it and I don't I don't want anybody to be insulted when I say that it, when you become a medical student, it, it almost sort of pales in comparison. Um, and again, no offense taken, please, because we totally get when you're a pre-med. We remember, too. Hey. It's it's it's. I mean, it is hard stuff. It's nothing. But well, <laughs> once once you become a medical student, then you know where we're coming from. Yeah. So so that's the thing, and and I think the other thing too, though, is is p- part of that. There's so much angst as a pre med, and so I think a lot of the pain and a lot of the just um, frustration is around that you're you're trying so hard you're you're desperately wanting so badly to be a medical student to to really you know take one foot forward and actually start on that path toward becoming a physician um you know for real in medical school in medical school um so i think a, a lot of that pain that frustration that's what is makes the pre med part so hard it's not the prereqs themselves for the most part it's just that 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 you know that desire and and wanting to meet that desire and, and actually you know start uh, and, and be a medical student. So uh, the classes themselves, though, and the volume and the knowledge, that's what we're saying is is what's really is it, extremely uh, challenging in certain ways, just that transition from a pre-med to med school. To, gosh, med student, med stool, I'm going great. So, yeah, I said med stool earlier. I don't know if you caught that. No. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Good. Uh, yeah. So, but but when you become a med student, things, things change. Yeah. So not only is it an increased load that drinking from a fire hose but you're also another thing that you're not prepared for is the peers that you're with are all about on an equal level as you are smart wise smart what's the term uh intelligence intelligence wise yeah (laughs) smart wise i don't know but 
in undergrad, it's it's a huge variation. You have some students there that really don't want to be there, and they're just there because their parents want them there. Some students are just many different majors spread out all over everything. But once you're in medical school, that level of competition is raised to another bar. And so you're, you're struggling with your coursework, and you perceive, and that's the biggest thing, is you perceive all of your peers doing so much better than you, when in reality, they're struggling just as much as you are handling that extra coursework and everything else as well, just like you are. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Absolutely. And I think, too, you were mentioning in undergrad, there's a spectrum of, of people who are have better grades or better students. The other thing is that in med school, uh, for the most part, people are very driven and very, uh, you know, they have they know exactly what they're aiming for in the sense that they all want to become physicians. That's why they're in medical school. They may not know what kind of physicians, but they know they want to become physicians. There are probably, and I know in our medical school class, there were, I think, a couple of students who were there because their parents had really wanted them to become physicians. But for the most part, that's not the case. So it's, you know, it's, um, I don't know, maybe this is a terrible analogy, but if you're you know, I think about like the star baseball player in your high school and then you go to college and you're on the team and, and everybody is amazing. It's yep. simply, you know, it's a great analogy. It's a perfect analogy. Well, thanks. Hey, um, what do you do about that? Just keep your eye on the ball. Just, just study hard, just like you have been all through pre-med and, and you, you may need to change your study habits, which we've talked about in other episodes, but just, you know, keep, uh, keep yourself focused. Yep. You are your own competition. Absolutely. That's huge. You compete with no one but yourself. Seriously. Yeah. So another big thing that students, pre-med students aren't prepared for is just the change in their life. So whether it's relationship status, interacting with family, the fact that you have all of this studying to do and once you hit clinical rotations, the lack of time that you have because you're in the hospital doing whatever, it's a huge impact on your your life. And if you're not prepared for that, it can destroy relationships, it can destroy you, it can do a lot of bad things. Yeah, I think you may have a lot of other commitments and, and, and also, honestly, people that you really want to stay in touch with and, and remain close to. And I think one thing that is helpful um, is prioritizing. If you look uh, at our medical school class, a, a lot of relationships uh, that came into school sort of didn't work out so well when people started. And part of that has to do with just people being at different phases in life and uh, long distance and all the sort of factors that play in there. But um, it's just it's you can't anticipate how much your life will change until you're actually in it. And it's you know, you're learning a new language. You're in terms of you're learning you know, medical school, med- you know, you're learning medical jargon and that alone, I mean, you're, is just a small piece of it, but you're becoming what you're going to become. You're becoming, uh, you're on the road to becoming a physician once you actually set foot in medical school. So um, just the, the amount of time and energy and focus that, that you take on is just, it's hyper-focused into this, this, um, you know, becoming a physician that you are doing. And so I think, uh, unintentionally, things that you may have prioritized prior to setting foot in the door may just sort of not start to fray, but sort of start to fade into the background a little bit. So 
if it's extremely important for you to work out at the gym seven days a week, that may or may not be feasible once you're in medical school. It may, it, it may, will be feasible. Well, it will, will be Make feasible. Make time to exercise. First. Yes, but I'm just saying, again, it's sort of balanced. So it may not be feasible seven days a week or, you know, maybe talking to, um, you know, all 10 of your friends that you're really close to um, every day. You know, I mean, it's common sense stuff, but, but it doesn't, I think things happen, you know, when you start orientation and then you just, you plunge forward into medical school and you don't have time necessarily to sort of anticipate how how your life can change so dramatically so fast because you know you hit the ground running literally and you're studying and you're gone. I mean, you are on your path and you're full speed ahead. Sorry if I'm using all these sort of uh, I don't know cliches. Yeah, exactly. I don't mean to, but but really, um, it you are full steam ahead, and so I think try to just prioritize before you before you get to school about who do you want to keep in touch with, who do you want to stay close to. Um, how important is the current relationship that you're in? Uh, if it's long distance, if it's not, um, all of these things, you know, and, and prioritizing who you want to continue to stay in touch with in terms of family. I remember talking to my parents, you know, and I talked to my parents quite a lot. And uh, when I got to medical school, there were conversations I would have some nights that were like, I love you, but I'm really too busy. And I, I just, I can't talk, you know, I'll talk to you when I can. And, um, and it was only because I, I literally just had so much work to do that I, there was, I didn't know how. <laughs> so it's, it's these types of things. I think it can just prevent some heartache and prevent some, Feelings of just frustration, potentially. Yeah. Everybody goes through it, though. So if, if you try and you prepare and then it doesn't work out, I mean, it's all part of it. So I think what you're saying is go to medical school with a clean slate. No, I, if you had no, I mean, so first of all, some people come into school married and have children. Hey. And, <laughs> no, I'm sacrifices just, we make. No, I am saying come in informed. So the last thing, you know, I think if I could have told myself coming into medical school, listen, the way that your life is right now is going to dramatically change very soon, you know, in a matter of days and just be okay with that. And, and sort of it will happen and, and you just have to figure it out. And uh, I knew that my life was going to change, but I just, I think you can't anticipate how becoming a medical st- student, even if you're not even quite yet on the wards, if you're in classes, it's just, it changes your life. And so um, just allow for that and prepare for that as, as best as you can. Yeah. Stay married, stay in your eye, please, Ryan, stop making it sound like I'm some sort of like homewrecker here. <laughs> All right. So that's pre-meds going to medical school. I'm sure there are plenty more things that we can talk about that that pre-meds aren't prepared for and they, they don't expect when they hit medical school. But let's move on to medical students and their preparation for residency and, and what is missing expectation-wise there. Right. So just as we were talking about the change in your life that happens when you go from pre-med to medical student, there is a massive change that happens when you go from medical student to resident. And are you doing a lot of the same things in terms of going from a medical student on the wards, taking care of patients to a resident on the wards, taking care of patients? Yes, it's it's a similar kind of work. However, part of what makes it so nuts is number one, you become responsible. So you're signing orders, you're the physician, you're the person that gets called uh, when you know the nurse has uh, a very big concern about a patient who's not doing well. You are responsible. And yes, obviously there is an attending physician who is supervising you and or a fellow, always an attending uh, at the end of the day. But it doesn't mean that 
you don't have a lot of uh, responsibility that you take on and a lot more volume. So in the same way that you go from pre-med classes to medical school classes, which have, you know, which require so much knowledge to be taken in so quickly, you might go from taking care of one or two patients or maybe even four if you're on like an away elective or a sub-internship to 10. Um, and they may be very complicated and very sick and you're responsible. So I think the biggest thing is that that sense of responsibility, number one, and what does that then therefore mean in terms of time? So you're there all the time, a lot. Well, not all the time, but you're <laughs> With there. With duty hour restrictions yeah, now, it seems a lot less. You're there a lot of the time and you have that responsibility. So everything is amplified. Yeah. It's, it's very different as a third and fourth year student on your rotations. Oftentimes, you're being sent home early. Go study, go study, go study, because you still have tests to take and, and information to learn. And so the residents hopefully are aware of that and are kicking you out during slow times. But when you are that intern and you are that resident, you can't kick yourself out. There's work to do always. And and they're studying to do because there's still more tests to take. Yep. And you have your boards and, and every year I'm in, in, I think, almost every residency program, uh, they have residency and service training exams, which are part of how you prepare to take your boards. And so you take those as part of your program every year. So there is always... If you're not seeing patients and taking care of your patients actively on the wards, you need to be learning what you know what else you haven't learned about and and preparing for for those tests. So it's uh, and it's draining. I mean that's another big difference, right? So we I remember so vividly you go from being in uh, medical school in the classroom mainly to then being on the wards. And I remember like getting up at four thirty in the morning for my OB rotation. And I remember I'd always listen to this particular song on the way to to the hospital, it, and it would be pitch black out because it was so early. And I was thinking, you know, oh God, I'm just so tired every day, and I don't have time, to, and I have to, I need to be studying for my shelf exams, and it's exhausting. And then again, pales in comparison you become a resident and it's just like, are you kidding me? I mean, you're exhausted, you're sleep deprived, you're not eating well, you're constantly in the hospital. It's just, you know, again, your life, it's your life changes so dramatically. And again, in overnight, you know, uh, June, it's not always, I mean, they always say July one, it's not really because you have orientation, but let's just say for, you know, all intents and purposes, it's June 30th and then July one, your life is different. So, um, but, but again, it's a rite of passage. And what can you do? Again, embrace the idea that things are going to be different. And don't be scared, I think, too. Um, I don't know what your sense was, Ryan. Were you nervous about internship? Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so I think that's, you know, maybe your your fellow students aren't uh, in medical school. You know, maybe people aren't talking about it. And maybe people are more just talking about how excited they are. They're finally MDs and DOs. And now we can prescribe meds and we can actually do this and we've arrived. Uh, but, you know, between you and me, it's a little bit terrifying. When you, um, when you open up your, your match... Uh, Thing, the envelope Your letter. And you, you yeah. see who you match with it should come with a um like a pack of underwear too oh jeez <laughs> change your underwear well yeah i remember just having this kind of fear this like fear in the pit of my stomach i was so nervous and everything was fine but um again it's that it's that sense of responsibility uh and and you will be okay you absolutely will be okay i remember our residency program director and internship looking around at orientation on one of the very first days and saying i know all of you out there there's you know some of you think that you know 
um, you've gotten in here and committed fraud or that, well, that you've, you've matched here and, and that, that, you know, that we don't know, but you really don't belong here and you're not really up to this and, or up for this. And, um, and you know, it's not going to work out for you. Don't worry. We've all been there. We've all felt that way. And I remember thinking that is how I feel, but it was fine. It was totally fine. Yep. Another thing that we've talked about before on the podcast, back in session 69 and session 70, Again, you can listen to those, medicalschoolhq.net slash 69 and slash 70, is about palliative care and family meetings and, and that general kind of environment as an intern, as a resident, that you're just not prepared for. Um, tip, most people aren't prepared for as, as a pre-med student, as a medical student, um, for when you are an intern, when you are a resident, to deal with those situations, not only with patients and their families, but also once you take off your white coat and you go home and you're sitting by yourself on the couch, how to process that information. Absolutely. It was hearing you say that just made me think about, uh, you know, the uh, Institute of Medicine just recently came out with a very um, long report uh, entitled Dying in America. And it was all about the need for uh, the medical institution to train uh, our community, our healthcare provider community better in medical school and nursing school and everything um, in terms of how to better care for patients at the end of life. And uh, you were interviewed for that article. Well, I was. I wasn't interviewed for the report. I mean, the report report, was the report. But yeah, actually, uh, Neurology Today, which is uh, one of the big magazines in in the neurology world, uh, did. They interviewed me based on the work I did um, in residency uh, on end-of-life care and neurology patients. It was a really... I was honored to be featured in the art to be, you know, asked to comment um, in the article. And, and it was really interesting. You don't need to read the entire Institute of Medicine report. If you go to that report and we'll link to it, there's actually a summary at the beginning, which uh, it's, you know, a bunch of pages, 17 pages or something like that. But it it nicely outlines their recommendations. And it's so important. And one of the key things in there is about education. So I strongly, so strongly believe in the fact that we need to uh, really inject uh, major changes in, in our medical schools in terms of uh, teaching about palliative care and teaching about end-of-life care. Uh, so that's crucial. And then the other thing you mentioned, Ryan, which is so huge too, is that we still do not do a good job about uh, helping, well, training ourselves in medical practice to, uh, or as we as we go on this journey to become physicians and beyond, how do we process these these very difficult things that we see? And I, you know, I think back on so many um, just unbelievable things that I saw as a resident. And who did? What did I do with all those thoughts and feelings? It's not like at the end of one of these uh, devastating things you or experiences you go and you sit in a room with people and you talk about how it made you feel. We, we just talked about how there's no time for that, right? You're just trying to make sure you're eating and you're sleeping and and uh, taking care of patients, taking care of yourself, we don't build in time for that. That's where humor comes from. That is true. So people develop coping mechanisms. For Ryan, humor is a big one. (laughs) Uh, For me, crying. (laughs) I mean, we all have to have an outlet for the emotions that we feel when when we see difficult things. And and pre-meds out there, I know that you, a lot of you are... uh, you are volunteering and and doing internships and involved in in caring for underserved populations and and seeing really difficult things. So start early. Ryan and I always talk about writing things down. Part of writing things down is about 
uh, collecting these experiences so that when you do apply for medical, you do apply to medical school, you have experiences that you can really draw from very vividly and in a powerful way to uh, communicate how passionate you are about wanting to become a physician and and how you've gotten there and these how these experiences have helped you get you know to that that place um but also what does writing do it helps you process so start writing down these experiences that are difficult in medical school same thing it's um it's been so interesting to me to see the difference between when I was a pre-med and looking at the books in, in the store, Barnes & Noble, which is like, there's so few bookstores now, it's crazy. But anyway, um, how many books were on the shelf in the bookstore about uh, people writing about their experiences as as interns and, and medical students? And now you look and there are books everywhere. And so people are finding time. And the question is, you know, when, but but I so encourage that. And and I, we, you and I both should be doing more of that. Um, yeah. What we do, I think what we've both done since we've known each other since the beginning of med school is just to share with each other. So if nothing else, if you don't have time to write, you know, talk about it. Yeah. In a HIPAA protected way. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> talk about, you know, the 46 year old man you saw the, you know, no patient yeah. identifiers, but the, uh, and we, we haven't talked about this as a kind of distinct separate subject, but I think we should, is the kind of unknown world of physician suicide. Mm-hmm. It's really not unknown. It's been in the news a lot lately. It's kind of a this dark shadow over the profession. And, and I wonder if we do better at teaching these coping mechanisms as medical students, as residents, we can prevent some of the, these uh, suicides. Absolutely. And, you know, ironically or not ironically, I mean, the folks, the only folks that I ever witnessed that really had a handle on this were the psychiatrists. In my residency, the only time in all four years that we actually sat around and uh, made a point to talk about how certain patient encounters made us feel was on my psychiatry rotation and in, in my neurology residency. That's just part of the training, though. It is, but but <laughs> it's part of it is because of transference, countertransference, so things that you learn as, as in how to, to manage patients who have uh, psychiatric illness. But they really they have it right. I mean, it's we all should be doing that as physicians and healthcare providers and sitting down. You know, they talk about like we we do team huddles in the clinic and and in the hospital. We should be doing way more of that. Taking a moment as a team and and as a person uh, to talk about well, how did how did that make me feel? How did that make us feel? I agree. All right, so that covers a lot of the. Med student to resident. Now let's talk about resident to real world. And one of the first things that we wrote down here is kind of the the money-making aspect of medicine and how do you bill properly and how do you uh, properly code all of these visits that you're seeing because you need to code, maximize your code so you can maximize something called an RVU, a relative value unit, because that's how you get paid. And there's this whole kind of cryptic system of of billing and healthcare payments and everything. And and you learn nothing of that as a resident <laughs> very, or very little. Very, very little. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think it totally depends on where you're trained and and you know what just where you are in the country or what your experiences are. A friend, a very good friend of ours uh, from medical school, who did um, a fellowship in in um, 
interventional spine anyway in physiatry, not important. But the point is he did a fellowship and his attending, his supervising attending took the time as part of his uh, clinical experience to really teach him how to properly code and bill. And you might think, well, you know, and I remember thinking this as a resident, well, you know, whatever, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that's, that's not the point of why I'm here. That's not what I need to be doing. I'm here to learn the body and the mind. Yeah. I'm here to, to learn neurology and take care of people and, and learn this craft. And that's true. That is the, the, the the important thing that you're there for, but you do. I think I think if I had, could do it all over again, I would probably try to to at least ask. If it wasn't something given to me, I would at least try to ask. Uh, you know, well, tell me more about how this works and and why is this important? Because uh, when you do enter practice, whether it's in an academic institution or setting rather, or a private practice setting, or even you know research setting, and then you have some clinical duties, you're going to encounter billing and coding and. Uh, whether or not we want to admit it, we as physicians, we don't, you know, it's not like in the old days when you'd barter and somebody would give you chickens and you would heal their wound. I mean, it's you're we we are a business, you know, and um, we do need to get paid because we do need to take care of our families and live our lives. Uh, so how do we do that? Well, that's not something that is covered. Um, certainly not when we were in medical school and in residency, it's, it's not, it's what I would call sort of an artificial environment in the sense of outpatient, uh, medicine. So in the inpatient world, you don't really code a lot of that sort of, you know, the billing is done by the attendings, but in the outpatient world and, and every uh, residency program in the country or almost all, you have to have at least uh, one day of clinic every single week. So you do encounter outpatient medicine um, and you should hopefully learn something about how coding and billing works uh, because when you do enter the real world, um, it's, it's really important. And, and what I meant by saying it's sort of, you know, it's artificial, um, is that it, you don't, you kind of see tiny pieces of it. Like we would be given a, a sheet and we would circle a code on there. We would, you know, we wouldn't even really circle a code. We would circle like how complicated the visit was or something like that. But uh, you you actually have to learn, well, what are the important codes I need to know so that you're not Googling them like, you know, f- for literally like 30 minutes of your day. What are all these codes for all these visits? It, it can become overwhelming is the point if you don't know anything about it and you're and you're completely, um, you know, a deer in the headlights when you start uh, in practice. Yeah. And that's going to get a lot more fun with ICD-10. And they have the codes go from like 10,000 to 60,000 or something. Right. It's going to be crazy. And there are billing courses you can take and, and depending. Yeah. Seek those out as a resident if, yeah. if your your residency will send you to them or bring somebody in to teach you. And medical schools are starting to sometimes actually include uh, courses on billing or courses just on, on the healthcare system. And that was our sort of next big thing, right? Yeah. So the healthcare system, I mean, that's, an, that's sort of the... Obamacare. Well, the overarching deal is that, you know, so again, I mean, when you, when you become a physician, you go into practice, um, you're, you're practicing medicine, but within a larger system. And what does that system include? Well, in the United States currently, it includes a lot of, and in Canada, I, I, it's, it's different. And so I don't know, so I can't speak to it uh, because it's, it's a different kind of um, healthcare system there. But in the United States, 
Uh, it is. It involves multiple different insurance companies. So you've had you have Medicare, you have Medicaid, you have uh, all of these different private health insurers. So Tufts and Harvard Pilgrim and Blue Cross Blue Shield. I mean, there are tons of them, and you have to know. You have to learn and know how to work with these companies so that your patients, who are members of these companies, can uh, get the testing done, and that testing gets reimbursed, and everybody gets paid, and everybody hopefully gets a diagnosis and goes home happy. <laughs> it's not. Not that com- I mean, it's not that simple, yeah. right? Yeah. Were Were you prepared that first time where you had to con- you had to have a conversation with the insurance company doctor, a peer to peer, the peer to sure, a peer to peer, when you had to explain to them why you were ordering a test, the medical necessity of that test, because they really didn't want to pay for that expensive MRI or that expensive new fancy test. So was I prepared in, I mean, in a sense, I had heard that this happened, <laughs> that you had to do this thing where sometimes you would have to talk to another physician in an insurance company who uh, was trying to keep their dollars and you're trying to show why, no, they should pay for this test. I just remember feeling frustrated. And it's the same feeling that I have every time I have to do one of these. Uh, fortunately, it's not that often, but it's very frustrating. Another thing that comes up all the time is something called prior or pre-authorization, where you have to defend why you want to give a patient a specific medication. And certain insurance companies will not um, reimburse or not reimburse. They will not authorize uh, the dispensing of a medication you prescribe by a pharmacy, meaning they won't pay for it, um, regardless of what your reasoning is. And the patient may end up with a huge copay, like a five hundred dollar copay, when they go to the pharmacy. So, how do you navigate those difficult situations? And a lot of physicians have expressed, you know, a lot of frustration because they spend some amount of their time during the day in practice defending their. Um, their clinical decision making and not because, you know, you're being pimped and, you know, in residency or in med school and you're trying to like show why you know this and why you're right and, and why it's important. No, you're just trying to explain to an insurance company who is not educated in the way that you are um, why this is appropriate and necessary. You're just trying to get the patient what they need. Yeah. And it's the hardest because, if something doesn't go right, that patient's at the pharmacy, that patient is trying to get their MRI, the first person they call is you, the physician. Right. I've been... You may not know all the answers, and so you're scratching your head. The patient's getting mad at you. You're getting Absolutely. frustrated. Yep. Yeah. So uh, it's, I think, so important that medical schools and residencies start implementing some sort of education about... Uh, not just how we bill, how we code, but how do we function in the context of this larger healthcare system? The other thing that you know you may not know is that when you become a practice or when you go out and practice, um, or when you get credentialed at any hospital institution, you have to be credentialed with these insurance companies. Now, I say that I mean you don't have to be. You could, in theory, go out into the middle of the woods and open up, you know, a practice, cash and, only business, <laughs> right, and a cash only business. But the rea- and and there are, by the way, some psychiatrists who've had to do that, uh, and other physicians. But physiatrists are, are, you know, by most in number, psychiatrists. Who, psychiatrists. Yeah. What did I say? Sorry. Physiatrists. Sorry, I meant psychiatrists. Psychiatrists. Um, who have not been able to to get you know reimbursed um, well enough to make a living from the insurance companies, so they have gone to self pay only. But for the most part, we do 
do work with uh, these insurance companies. And so learning how to navigate that, it, it's not that complicated. If you can master physiology and pathophysiology and biochemistry, by God, you can master this. But it's it's, it's more, just a matter of taking the time and, exactly. and understanding how important it is. It is. It's sort of it's a necessary evil. I mean, they this is the way our system works, and we need to be able to know how to function in it so that you're not bogged down by phone calls and people hounding you when you know you're just trying to do your job. So the the last thing we have here is something that the majority of residencies don't prepare you for, and there are some exceptions. There there are some outpatient, primarily heavy residencies, but many primary care. You mean? Pre, well, yeah, like family practice oh, yeah, would yeah. be one. Dermatology is is very out outpatient heavy. That many residencies prepare you by being inpatient and working in an inpatient setting, taking care of patients. Mm -hmm. They'll have clinic where you go and see patients in an outpatient type setting, but they don't really prepare you for that outpatient medicine, so to speak. Right. And and everything that comes along with that. And you can speak towards that because you've been in private practice now for a year and a half. Absolutely. Um, You have what's called continuity clinic and at least the way it exists now, and this might be different in five or 10 years, who knows, but continuity clinic means that for the duration of your residency for every, at least, you know, every week, once a week, and it may be different again, if you're in more of a sort of an outpatient heavy specialty, but for the most part, um, you have a clinic once a week. And so the idea is that it has continuity, meaning you're seeing patients over and over again, patients who you uh, will have seen before and will see again. What is the problem with this setup? Well, what are you doing the other, you know, the other six days or five days of the week? You're in the inpatient world. And so that continuity per se of this clinic is very broken up. And so in theory, yes, you could be seeing another patient again, but what it, it really Uh, or the same patient again. But what it really means, at least in my experience, and for many other physicians out there, is that you saw a patient and then the next week you would see another patient and then it would be like that. And I think in my residency, I saw probably a handful of patients, uh, uh, you know, a couple of times or maybe even three times. By the end of your residency, you've probably seen them, hopefully, at least a couple of times. Maybe you've seen them once a year. But it's not, you don't get to see the follow through of outpatient medicine. You don't get to to learn what happens when I order these tests and, and what was the diagnosis in the end. You really, it's sort of a, a system of handoffs where the patient will then come in for their follow up and they might see another resident. And programs try to have you keep seeing the same patient and and contact them. But again, you're you're very um, very immersed in the inpatient world, and so it can be very hard to really uh, learn what it's like to actually manage patients in the outpatient setting in in this sort of format. So what happens as a result? Well, you can get frustrated and feel like you're not really making a difference to those patients because you're really, you're trying so desperately to get back to the wards because you have all this stuff that you need to do when you get back and then you have to get home and feed your cat and blah, blah, blah. And so, (laughs) uh, I don't know, I don't have a cat, but I'm just saying. Um, And so you, you don't get to spend to dedicate the amount of time and care that you may feel you really want to and you may lose out really um, often on the opportunity to experience, you know, that, that sort of feeling of reward that you're you are doing something helpful making a difference and at the end of my point therefore is that what is that doing well to some degree it may be actually uh shying people away or pushing people away from um primary care 
Um, so for example, if you're in an internal medicine residency and you're trying to decide, well, do I want to pursue primary care? Do I want to pursue critical care or cardio, uh, cardiology or, or nephrology? Uh, you may uh, see, um, or maybe you're just trying to decide between inpatient and outpatient medicine, the hospitalist, you know, being in the hospital all the time versus being in the outpatient setting all the time. And you can see, well, where have I spent the most time in the hospital? Where do I feel the most comfortable in the hospital? Where do I see my patients getting better and going home in the hospital? So I think, um, it's, it's not, it's doing our country a disservice in that we so desperately need, uh, primary care physicians and we need to devote more time and, um, and true continuity, I think to those clinics, but certainly not a question or a problem that I can solve on my own. Uh, it's, uber duper complicated. But, um, you know, again, that's, that's just something to potentially prepare yourself for that you may not have that sort of, um, that situation that you envision where you're, you're in the clinic and you're taking care of patients, um, on an ongoing basis as a resident, it may not be something you can fully sort of, uh, learn to develop and, and really create those, those lasting and meaningful relationships with patients that you're so wanting until you're actually out in practice for a while. It's something to keep in mind if you're offered the opportunity for elective time, if you can get out into an outpatient setting for an elective and and get out there and experience what it's like. Absolutely. And and in a true sort of, you know, practice setting where where um sometimes all these concerns do come up um yeah. about, you know, also about like how to practice. Oh. All right. Any parting words of wisdom? I think uh just embrace it all. I mean, yeah. really, because again, we just try to be as honest and open as we can with you out there. And, um, but, but a lot of each of these things, I mean, it's just a rite of passage, each step along this, this great journey called how to become a doctor or becoming a doctor or a physician. And, uh, you can only prepare yourself so much for these sort of massive life changes you will undergo. They're all great at the end of the day. And I know Ryan always says I sugarcoat everything, but no, it's really <laughs> yeah, more, but it's more honestly, honestly, uh, I just, I think I try to see the good, but I, I look back and, and truly, I mean, I've, there were some very lows, big lows, you know, highs and lows, but there's some major lows for me during parts of my residency. I mean, as you know, I was diagnosed with Crohn's and I was under a lot of stress. I mean, you know, been through some tough times, um, but I would still do it all again. And, and I think, you know, again, just being as informed as you can is really um, the best thing you can do for yourself. And and then just embrace it all um, because it's the experiences you have, both the highs and the lows, that will make you, um, you know, that much more passionate, that much more hopefully um, driven to be a better and better physician because you've had difficult experiences and good experiences along the way. All right. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Allison and myself. We tried to... As we said at the beginning of the episode, we we try to give you the best, most honest picture possible of what life is like as a pre-med, a medical student, a resident, and then out practicing as a physician. Because you need to, as, as you begin your journey, you need to make sure that this is truly what you want to do. Because once you are out practicing, if you're miserable then you are not doing any benefit to your patients. You're not doing any benefit to the medical profession as a whole. And and you're most likely out there doing a lot of negative pub, uh, publici- publicity, let me speak properly, publicity uh, for the medical 
um, kind of enterprise as a whole, talking negatively about what it's like to be a physician and, and possibly detracting other students away from that. So hopefully we didn't detract you today. We, we tried to give you a good picture without sugarcoating too much, although Allison does like to do that, uh, but we won't hold that against her. If you thought of anything that we didn't talk about, if you have questions, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash 107 for the specific show notes page of this episode, and we can continue the conversation there. You can also continue the conversation on Twitter. I am at medicalschoolhq, or you can just shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. If you enjoyed this podcast, if, if you would take a minute of your time, if you haven't yet, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate all of those ratings and reviews. Those help us be more visible in iTunes as people search for us. If you listen in Stitcher, you can leave a rating and review there as well. One other thing that I want to talk about is the academy. If you're a pre-med student, especially a non-traditional pre-med student, because I think non-traditional pre-med students, you guys have the hardest time getting the advice, getting the guidance that you need. Go check out jointheacademy.net. That's our private community for helping students like yourself have a safe place to come and ask questions, get the advice that you need, get some personal statement advice, get some mock interview help, and really prepare for your applications to medical school and and really your whole journey through the pre-med process into medical school. And this year, this is mid-December now almost, We've had at least five people get into medical school. This is the first full year that we've been open during an application cycle, so we're really excited to see, I think, everybody that's applied from the academy get in, which is awesome. We have done mock interviews, a lot of mock interviews with the students, and one of the students we did a mock interview with is Andrew, and he talks about his experience with mock interviews here. You know, I had gone through some mock interviews uh, here in my area, but those are folks, the folks doing those mock interviews are primarily business, primarily looking for employment type interviews. Really, I, I think was good with some of just my presentation and things they could work on, but really as far as fine-tuning, preparing for the types of questions that you're going to get when you go through. It, it was really key, I think, to have that insight. It really made going in uh, and interviewing at Louisville a lot easier for me because I certainly knew the kinds of questions that they were going to ask. I think a big thing from you, a big piece of advice, was to know myself more than simply to prepare for those scenario-type questions that everybody else liked to focus on. And that was a huge help. Uh, one of my interviewers, you know, you only get two interviews, and one of my interviewers didn't even ask me any scenario-based questions. It was all purely based off of, you put this in your secondary, you put this in your AMCAS, tell me more about that. And so I think just having that insight was huge for me. But I think even the scenarios that Allison really brought out during the interview were huge because those are the exact same kind of questions that I got asked during my interview. So there were really no surprises going in, and it really made me comfortable on interview day. That's awesome. And we got that feedback from Brian also, another 
member who uh, interviewed this year's third or fourth application to medical school uh, application cycle. And we did a mock interview with him. And he went, interviewed, got accepted, and came back and told us pretty much everything that we asked him during his mock interview was asked of him during his real interview. So he was prepared, he was ready to go, and that's half the battle during these medical school interviews. So go check out jointheacademy.net. Join now. It's mid-December. At the end of December, we are closing new registrations for the Academy because as as we start to ramp up for the next application cycle, which is kind of crazy thinking it's only December, we want to really prepare the, the students that we have in there now for their applications. And we may or may not um, open up again for the next application cycle. So go to jointheacademy.net. And after you go to jointheacademy.net, Go check out premedlife.com, our partner magazine. They're over at premedlife.com. They just recently published an article that's based off of our interview with Dr. Wagner back in session 19. They have a ton of great articles for the premed. Go check them out, premedlife.com. And after you're done checking them out, just make sure you come back here and check us out next week here at the medical school headquarters. 